You guys know I'm always talking about tracking my money. You can't manage what you don't measure. And I use a paid app to do that because I'm kind of crazy. But when I talk to you guys, my readers and my listeners, you want a free solution. You want something that links to your personal accounts and tracks your net worth. You want something that has analysis tools and a personalized plan for you. And you want real wealth management advice. The free answer is personal capital. Personal capital is an awesome tool, and it is hard to believe that it's free. And the world agrees. Year after year, personal capital is recognized as a best-in-class budgeting and tracking tool. And that's why I feel good about being affiliated with them. So if you want to start getting your finances in order, and you want to do it for free, start with personal capital. Here's how. Go to the show notes, click on that link, and let them know that the best interest sent you, and start your free account today. That's personal capital, your all-in-one free personal finance tool. Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, welcome to episode 31 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. My guest today, he's another young rising star in this new age of financial education. He's got tens of thousands of followers and students through Twitter, through Instagram, on YouTube, and on uh, Discord channels. In fact, he recently quit his nine to five job because these various educational side hustles that he has are now bringing in more money than that day job. That is super cool. And I think you will see today why he's attracted that huge following. But real quick, before I introduce our guest, could you please pause the show and then in your podcast app, give a rating and review to the Best Interest Podcast. Why? Because the Best Interest, it's a growing small business and I want to keep making this content for people just like you. A rating and a review, it lets all those fancy algorithms know that you care about this podcast. And I know I'm asking for your time, I'm asking for your effort, and I know that you don't owe me anything. So I really appreciate those of you who decide to sacrifice that time and effort to leave that rating and review. Thank you guys. So with that, let's go meet our guest. My guest today is Colin, the Decade Investor. Colin, much like recent guest Hero Dividend, is years ahead of his time, at least by my standards. He's got a successful podcast, a successful YouTube channel, and a strong social network, all focused on investing and at the ripe old age of 23. And today, I'm excited to learn some new ideas from him. So Colin, welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, man. How you doing? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. Um, super honored to come on here and, and connect and share everything that you know we love talking about on that side of social media, um, and really just be able to expand on you know what I talk about on Twitter. Um, and you know, this gives me the opportunity to use more than 280 characters to to really go out there and dive deep on whatever topics that we're going to cover today. So, um, super grateful and super excited to to have this conversation. That's such an important thing you've already touched on that. 
that many of our listeners who are familiar with Twitter tend to forget is that there's a way that you can expand on some of these ideas and add nuance to the conversation that Twitter never really rewards people for nuance, but we have big bonus points for nuance here on the Best Interest Podcast. And Colin, I was hoping we could start with essentially you telling us a little bit about who you are and specifically through the lens of, of your youth, kind of how you got started down this path about learning about investing and investing yourself, and then eventually how you kind of turned the corner and decided that you wanted to create content about investing to share with others. Yeah, so definitely. Um, when I started out investing, I was 16, 17, um, right around my 16, 17th birthday. So it put me right around 16, 17. And um, it really started out as a curiosity thing, right? So when I was 15, 16, um, I was in high school mowing lawns. So I was making money, um, but I wasn't really sure where to put that money. Um, to be completely honest with you, I did not like the banks. I hated the banks because, well, looking back, I know why now I hate the banks because of the, the you know, they don't pay us anything and to hold our money. But back then, um, I, I just didn't like the banks because my reasoning was I couldn't physically see my money. I wasn't excited to uh, not see my money. So I wanted to hold it in cash. And that was great when I was 15, 16. But then this curiosity stepped in and I'm seeing people on TV, you know, reading things about Warren Buffett or these other very wealthy individuals. And I'm curious, how can they get to where they are? You know, at that age, how can I maybe start to get on that path? And so it really formed out of curiosity. And when I turned, you know, 16 and around 17, that curiosity led me to reading about investing, personal finance, the stock market, basically everything that um, rides around personal finance. And from there, I really was able to, um, you know, basically learn the basis basics of investing, learn investing, learn in the stock market, learn about stocks, index funds, ETFs. And, and from there, I dove into individual stocks. That was when I first started out investing and I picked four individual stocks. I put $100 in each and couldn't tell you the stock ticker off the top of my head. I had to go do research. Couldn't even tell you what those companies did. Basically did everything that I do not teach, you know, mm -hmm. on my social media today. Um, and, and, you know, grateful that that $400 lesson where I, most of that money was lost. Um, only one of those three in about a year went up, everything else went down. Um, and, and I learned a lesson, you know, you have to know what you're investing in. And so I took a step back and found a lot more about index funds and ETFs and just a better way to start investing and learn how the stock market works. And that's when I really jumped into doing index funds and ETFs and where I've really found love and found home in doing, you know, simple, broad market index funds and ETFs, keep my money, you know, in, in terms of investing in one, you know, more safer type investment um, in the stock market. And, and so that's kind of my story. It was really just curiosity formed in my head as this 15, 16, 17 year old kid. And from there, um, that curiosity led me to investing. And then when it comes to social media, it was really just the idea of, I, I started the Twitter account. That's where, I, that's where the Decade Investor name came about was on Twitter. And it was July, actually tomorrow of 2020. So just wow. a year ago okay. tomorrow um, is when the Twitter account, I started it in May, but I didn't start tweeting on it until July 28th of 2020. And I, I was living in Texas in Houston. I just graduated school. I was living by myself in the middle of the pandemic. Didn't really know anyone at all. I was just kind of bored to be completely honest. So I was like, wanted to jump on Twitter, not even knowing 
this kind of money Twitter type community existed. I just created this account to just share about investing and not really expect anything out of it. I just was not even really sure what to expect. And um, from there, I kind of was, you know, when I opened the account and I think it was May of 2020, I was just kind of scrolling through following these, you know, these people that we see now, like the wealth dad and some other accounts and just kind of, just kind of seeing what they're doing and seeing what they're teaching and thinking to myself, you know, how can I, how can I add value to this community? How can I add value as a, at the time, a 22 year old kid, how can I add value? And to me, it was just the idea of, I see other 22 year old, 23 year old, really anyone in their twenties in their early twenties or even late teens. um, You know, this financial education aspect is not there. We might have, uh, you know, personal finance in school, but it's not really taught. And and if it is taught, it's kind of just like um, half taught, you know, uh, it's not really fully given the, 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 the pride or given what it should be given. It's kind of taught by someone who, a teacher that maybe doesn't really teach personal finance. It's not really something that they care about. They just doing it to fill a, you know, whatever. And so I'm thinking to myself, how can I step in and add value to other 20 year olds out there in their early twenties? How can I be someone of value to them? And that's really how I started to form my tweets was just, Hey, how, what would I love to see? What would I love to have like seen if I was 18 or 23? What would I have wanted to see when I was first starting out? And so it's just got to the point where the idea of, you know, I want to be able to give back and teach people what I know. And I don't know it all, nor do I claim to know it all, right? I'm always continually learning. And I, I you know, I don't have the millions of dollars that, that people have. But I know I have something of value. Everyone has something of value that they've learned, whether it be personal finance or really anything. As long as you've been on the path, you have something of value to add. And that's where I just stepped in and realized, hey, what can I add value to? Um, and, and how can I be of value to this community? And from there, you know, the following has just kind of taken off. I don't really, you know, I never expected that opening Twitter as, you know, that account. Um, but I'm grateful every day to be able to teach and preach um, the beautiful things of, of finance to really everyone of every age nowadays and, and everyone all over the world, which is really a crazy thing about social media in and of itself. Absolutely is a crazy thing about social media and your reach is global. That's so cool. You know, s- similar with the podcast and the blog, maybe not quite to your extent, but I get messages from all over the place and that's, that's a pretty cool thing. I wanted to ask you, Colin, you mentioned there that you try to spread the message of what you would have wanted to learn when you were, say, 17, 18. I mean, walk us through maybe a couple easy examples of, of those kind of simple messages that are targeted towards younger people who, like you alluded to, maybe they got a three-day course in high school or a really short lesson plan, but not a fully-fledged a fully fledged introduction into personal finance. How do you fill that gap? Yeah, it, the biggest lesson that I love to teach and really the goal of my Twitter is basically saying the same five, 10 things, but just in different ways to get people to really understand it. Because, you know, what might make sense to me might not make sense in the exact same way it's worded to you or someone else. So so my goal is to say the same 10, five, you know, 15 things, but same in so many different ways that it's going to make sense to anyone that reads it or, you know, one version is going to make sense to everyone. And so the biggest thing that I love to teach and the biggest thing that that is so powerful is just the idea of when you're as early as you start, like if you start very early, the amount that you have to invest can be so much smaller than someone who starts at 30 versus 20 
or 40 versus 30, right? And so that whole idea of it's not about having a lot of money. It's about starting when you, when you, when you start and when you build confidence and trust with yourself within the market, then as your income or your ability to invest more increases, then the trust is already there. But so many people fall trap, especially in the younger age, they fall trapped to the idea of, well, what's $300 a month going to do? What's $500 a month going to do? Right. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a human psychological thing, right? We don't, it's hard for us to see 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. And, you know, in, in terms of life, that's for some people, you know, it's a long time, 10 years is a long time. Um, and so to think that long. And so, um, I just try to be able to, I, I try to hone in on that so much, you know, Hey, I'm not trying to ask you to invest you know, $10,000 a month because you probably don't make $10,000 a month, but I'm asking you for $300 a month. And then next year, if your income increases by 5%, then you put set aside 3%. Now it's 350 a month or whatever the math turns out to be. Mm-hmm. And, and you just continually stay at it and you increase your contributions as your income increases, then that's where the magic really happens. Um, and so that's, that's the biggest lesson I like to teach to especially younger um, investors or newer investors is just stop focusing on the amount and focus on starting. Just start and, and you kind of learn as you go and you can change it up as you go, but you just have to start because compound interest, the beautiful thing that everyone talks about does not work with $0, right? It, you have to have at least a dollar in there. So just get something in there to start and, and then you can really you know, see magic start to happen. I just checked the math on that, Colin, and the math works. Compound interest does not work with zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really like that, Colin. You basically said, start with 100, start with 50, start with whatever small amount you're comfortable with, because investing in the stock market isn't necessarily a comfortable thing for the average 22-year-old. They might not know, but you can start with that little dollar amount, see how it goes over time learn more as you go, which we're all probably tempted to do because now we have maybe a few hundred or a few thousand dollars invested and we want to learn what is actually going on. And then as you learn, you'll get that confidence to start putting more and more in there. Exactly. And one other cool thing, Colin, that you're probably already familiar with this math, but some listeners might not be just a couple shortcuts that I like to use with my audience Two two pretty cool ones. The first one is that if you look at average stock market returns, The dollars that you invest in your 20s will matter more than the dollars you invest in your 30s, 40s, and 50s combined. That one decade of your 20s, speaking of decade investor here, (laughs) that one decade in your 20s, simply the way compounding works, if you assume that average kind of 8, 9, 10% stock market return, that's how important your 20s are. And because if you're you're investing at, say, let's go with a conservative uh, rate of return of 7% per year. Inflation adjusted, maybe that's right, 7% per year. But before inflation, it's more like 10% per year on average. Let's go with 7% per year. We can use that rule of 72 and pretty quickly decide that our money will double every 10 years. A nice, Mm -hmm. easy shortcut. The money you put in at 20 is going to double by 30. It's going to be 4x by 40. It's going to be 8x by 50. And it's going to be 16x by the time you retire around 60. That's a lot of compounding for that 22-year-old to grab hold of. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And that's the power. And that's why that's why I always, you know, I try to gear my tweets and my posts towards anyone, but I really am focused in on, you know, early 20s and really anyone in their 20s just because of that, the time that the beautiful time aspect that people in their 20s have. 
that mm-hmm. no, you know, if you're in the 30s or 40s, doesn't mean you can't start. It's never too late to start, but you just don't have that time compared to someone who's in their early 20s. Right. Now, early on, Colin, you mentioned that at 16, 17, 18, you found yourself reading some some content. I'm just curious, whether it's the content that you read then or whether it's something you're, you've read more recently, what are some of your favorite books or websites or blogs or YouTube channels, whatever it is? What, what kind of content do you like to read and learn from? Yeah, so my favorite book, when people ask me, I have two really big um, finance books or money books I love, love to talk about is the first one's I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Um, and that's a great book because um, and I don't know how to pronounce his name exactly. It's Ramit, I think it is. Yeah, Ramit Sethi. Um, Ramit. Okay, so Ramit does a great job of breaking down a lot of different things, talking about you know money in that aspect of like the numbers. Really, really great job. And then if you couple that, in my opinion, with The Millionaire Next Door, that one really talks about the psychological aspect, the, the behaviors of your everyday average millionaire. And um, I think you put those two together, that can really focus in. And I love reading them because it allows me to focus in on what's important and focus in on, you know, how do I break this down to the basics and really just focus in on the basics? Because it's, you know, so easy for me who's spending every day reading content, watching the markets, you know, coming up with content to explain things. Um, It's easy for me to use big words or use jargon that maybe a new investor might not understand or be confused about. So it's always good to go back for me and and reread these books that I first started reading that I can go and and use the the words or the phrases that makes more sense to, you know, a newer investor versus someone who's been around it for, you know, multiple years. Right. Now, Millionaire Next Door is one of those books. It's probably like top three in my list of very, very popular personal finance and investing books that I just haven't gotten around to reading yet. So if you remember kind of the, the plot or the gist of Millionaire Next Door, what's that book about? Basically, it's a study that was done um, with a bunch of millionaires that talks about just kind of looking at their everyday lives, how they spend their money. Um, and, and the powerful thing is, is with these millionaires, um, you know, when it comes to like one example is the vehicle they drive. Most people think that a millionaire, they have a lot of money, so they're going to be driving a BMW or a Lexus or whatever. And they're driving, I, I believe, and I might be incorrect here, but I believe that the the number one brand was Toyota or mm-hmm. Ford. It was one of the, you know, it's, it's a brand that is not seen as a luxury brand. And so this, this book kind of walks through, you know, everyday lives of these millionaires and how they spend their money and how they build their wealth and, and just kind of explaining to someone who's new to the whole investing aspect or new to the whole money talk that, you know, the average millionaire or the millionaire that we see every day, you know, hence the everyday millionaire, isn't this person that's driving the Beamer or is dry or living in that, you know, 5,000 square foot mansion. It's someone who, you know, maybe is your next door neighbor who looks like they're, they're broke, right? They don't have mm-hmm. the money, but they, they, they just don't show it off. Right. And so that book kind of walks through the psychological, psychologic of psychological, psychology of money um, that that really helps focus in on on that aspect of investing doesn't really focus much on the numbers, you know, talking about investing in the compound interest stuff, but it focuses more on psychology, which is what is a very big part of personal finance. Agreed, agreed. And, and that story, that description that you just gave, it reminded me of a little bit of the book called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, who's a big Twitter account, speaking of Twitter. And one thing you just said there, Colin, that Morgan Housel also says is how rich people are so often defined by what they don't do. 
or or that they they their spending behavior is antithetical to what the average person might assume the millionaire's spending mm-hmm. behavior is, right? The person who owns the million dollar car, they might not actually be a millionaire because that kind of uh, extravagant spending isn't necessarily correlated with the savings and the investing that it requires to become a millionaire. So it's very interesting that, that you'd bring that up. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, you know, I think as someone who isn't around the money talk stuff, who isn't around the the psychology of money, basically, or just money conversation every day, it's easy to assume that that person that has the, the million dollar car or the, you know, $100,000 car has a lot of money. Um, but when you really boil it down to it, you know, probably majority of them don't have that kind of money. Um, but because, and it's fair to think that because when we, when most people think wealth, we automatically assume the Uber rich, right? Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, the the people that have, uh, you know, between like a million and $50 million, you kind of kind of get looked over. Cause when you, someone thinks, Oh, that person's wealthy or they're rich. Most, the average person would think, okay, I'm thinking of like LeBron James or, you know, a famous athlete that has hundreds of millions of dollars. Now that lifestyle is way different than your everyday millionaire. Um, and and right. it's just one of those things that you, it's easy to think that cause you just don't know, but once you figure it out, once you learn about it and once you know, then it's, that conversation starts to get easier. Just out of curiosity, what kind of car do you drive? I drive a Hyundai Sonata. So Very I'm nice. part of the Sonata, you know, Sonata crew. Um, so Hyundai Sonata, great car and, and, uh, bought it used, but it's new. I always tell people this because the, the car topic gets me, you know, grinds my gears, the whole brand new car at 22, but I bought it used, but how, how you make it new to you is all you say is it's a new to me car. It's used, but it's new to me. And that's a new car. Yeah. There's your new car. <laughs> it's all about psychology, man. Whatever, whatever works for you. I, I've got a, a soon to be 10 year old Toyota RAV4. Rusty nice. rims still works. Still great. Yeah. We get some rust up here in upstate New York with the salt in the winter, but yeah, dude, it's, it's perfect. It's running like a dream. Can't complain. I'm going to run it into the ground. And, uh, that Tesla money, that BMW money, it's going elsewhere right now. It's going into index funds. One day, one day though, one day right. we, we can, but that, that, so my first car, when I turned uh, 16, I got my, it was a $5,000, um, uh, infinity, a 2002 infinity, just mm-hmm. a simple sedan. Um, I bought it with like 120,000 miles. I drove it for five years. So basically a thousand dollars a year was the cost. Um, and I put about 50,000 miles. So 10,000 miles a year and I sold it for $2,100. So nice. really it was about a $2,900 car. Um, cause I, the maintenance, a great car, you know, knock on wood at the time didn't have any, you know, all I had to do was change tires and oil. Um, and, and, but I think I would have loved to keep, I was going to keep that car. The only reason I had to get a new car was because my job, my first job out of college was outside sales and I was gonna be driving like 500 miles a week. And I didn't really want to get stranded, you know, in the middle of, of nowhere with a 2002 infinity that had 170,000 miles. But, um, I, I love, I love the, the older cars, you know, like to me, to me, a car is just a way to get from point A to point B. I'm, you know, at one day, do I, do I think Teslas are cool? Yes. I would love a Tesla. Um, but this not the not the right financial decision right now, and I'm not going to um, sacrifice my financial future for short short term, um, you know, gratification of a Tesla right now. One day, you know, that's that will definitely be in in my uh, driveway. But for the time being, I'm going to stick with uh, you know new to me cars. <laughs> right. You you just said something there that I really liked, which is uh, 
to you, the car is just a tool. And I go back to think about form versus function, form versus function. We all have to make form versus function decisions in our lives. Oftentimes there's spending associated with that where we have to tell ourselves, you know, I, I see you right now, Colin, you're wearing a, a Kansas Jayhawks baseball cap. Well, the function of that cap eh, might protect you from the sun, but it's, it's form maybe more than function, right? There's, there's a, a fashion aspect to that, but it's only a $20 purchase, right? So yeah. it's pretty acceptable. But if you're looking at cars and you're talking form versus function, you could easily convince yourself that you want to go with form and you want that $50,000 car instead of function, the Honda Civic, that's a $20,000 car. All of a sudden that form versus function spending can really do damage to your, to your long-term uh, financial success. You know, I certainly spend on, on form. There are things that I think are fancy that I spend money on that other people would say, well, what's the point of that? But I try to keep that spending to a minimum. I try to put my dollars to good use and, and get mm -hmm. a good tool rather than something that's fancy. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it boils down to, you know, if you love that $50,000 car mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what you want to do and, and you value it, value it because you value it. Not because, right. you know, the problem is most people, they buy that $50,000 car because it makes, they think it makes them look cool for their friends or for, you know, for whoever they're, they're showing off to. Right. And they're not really buying it because of them. Um, and, and so, it really, you know, fit versus form, 100% agree with that. And I would add another layer, layer two is just like, are you buying this because it brings value in your life, or you think it's, or because you think it's cool for you for you to drive that because you think other people will think you're cool, right? right. What, what's the what's the initiative behind per, that purchase? So just like an extra layer, but I think fit versus form is a great is a great uh, question and a great thing to think about when making those larger purchases. Yeah, well, it ties back to, to Ramit Sethi, who you brought up before. He talks about your rich life, where he says you should cut mercilessly on things you don't care about, and you should spend extravagantly on the things that you do care about. If you're a car guy and you've loved cars all your life and all you want to do is own that Tesla, and because that's where your rich life is, then I completely agree with you, Colin. Buy that yep. Tesla. It's going to make you happy. But if you're buying that Tesla because everyone else on the street has a Tesla, well, there's some really good psychological research out there that says that will not make you happy. 100%. Could not have said that better than myself. I, that's exactly what it is. And I think a lot of people sadly fall into the, the second half there of doing it because that's, you know, the, the common phrase, they're keeping up with the Joneses mm -hmm. rather than doing it because they truly value it. And that's where, you know, you find emptiness and that's where you find your, your, your uh, finances start to struggle because you're not doing it because you value it. You're doing it because, you know, Timmy next door has it or, you know, whoever it is. Right, right, right. So if I were to bet, Colin, I'm just thinking about your investing timeline. You said you started to get into it at 16, 17. That might have been what, like 2014, 2015, somewhere in that time frame. Um, you're making me do math. Um, <laughs> 20, let's see, 2021, I'm 23. Yeah, I would be like, 15, okay. 2015. No, so, I, I can't even do math right now. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. So between 2015 and 2017. Okay. Maybe a little okay. Later. So, so knowing those years, other than say that little COVID crash we had in 2020, you haven't really seen maybe a real bear market yet, right? You haven't Correct. seen that big downturn that, that will happen during normal stock market cycles. So I'm just curious. 
What do you think about the eventuality of a bear market? Or how are you preparing yourself? Uh, what advice, if any, do you give to people in your community who, who read your content? Just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and you're correct. I haven't. You know, the, the really the tw minus 2020, I haven't experienced any type of sell-off major. Um, and so I've never been in that situation. So everything I say, you know, um, could be easily said, oh, he's just saying that he's not actually doing that. Um, so I, in the terms of my community that I'm building on social media, um, when the day comes and what I teach now, um, I'm going to be doing what I teach. And that is, I'm going to be going there and buying more. I'm going to be, I'm not going to stop buying because for two reasons, number one, if, you know, if there is that bear market, the company or the, you know, fund that I'm investing in, um, I'm investing in them because I believe in them as a company and I believe in them long-term. And so the bear market or the a crash that whatever, you know, is going to happen in, in the you know, foreseeable future, whatever does happen, um, that's not going to cause me to sell out of that company. I'm not going to sell out of, let's just give you an example, um, you know, Apple, for example, let's just say Apple, we want to talk about Apple. I, I like Apple as a company. I, if they have a, if they fall into the bear market and maybe they're not even, you know, they're just falling in because they're Apple, they're the big name and they're just in there for no really reason. They're just in that crash. I love Apple long-term. So why would I sell out of the company if I love it long-term? You know, I believe that they'll find their way out of it with mm -hmm. their leadership and I'm going to, you know, keep buying it long-term. And my second really reason is I'm young, I'm 23. And so for me, I'm not really worried about my money holding value in terms of the stock market in the short term. And what I mean by that is, is I was telling this to someone the other day, for someone in their four, in their fifties or sixties or in retirement, seeing their portfolio in red, seeing that 2020 crash, that's not good. They don't want to see that, right? They want to get the most out of their money. But someone like me in my early twenties, I love seeing red. Now in the long term, I don't want to see red. I would love, you know, in the long term, in, in 30 years, I don't want my portfolio to be overall in the red from what it is today. But in the short term, I don't mind the red. I don't mind the down days because all that means is the same money I'm putting in today if I do it tomorrow, when there's that red day, I'm getting more shares for it. And if I love that company long-term, which I do, if I love that fund long-term, which I do, I'm just getting more bang for my buck. And so for someone who's in a wealth accumulation stage and who's trying to build up their, their volume of shares, seeing a red day in the short term, even if it's a bear market of five years, right? Which, you know, for some mm -hmm. people you hear that and you're like, man, I would not want to be in a bear market for five years, but that puts me at 28, 29 years old. And so that's still like, I'm still cool with that. I don't mm -hmm. mind that at all. Now, again, if you're later on, or you're nearing retirement, you don't want that. That's not going to be you know good to hear. But who's someone who has a long time horizon, being in a bear market and what I teach and what I preach is I'm not going to sell. I'm going to buy more. I'm going to continually do what I do today, what I've done last week, what I've done last month, what I've done the last five years. Just keep consistently investing every single week into my holdings because I believe in them long term the short-term volatility, even a mid-term bear market is not going to affect my long-term plan. Because if we go back and we look at the stock market since, you know, let's look at the S&P since inception in the 1920s, every single crash we've been in, there's been a recovery. Now, that does not mean that in the future, you know, it will, there will always be a recovery from a crash. You know, the past performance of the market does not predict the future performance, but it's a pretty good track record, right? It's a pretty good track record. It, you just take that information. If you don't think it will, you don't. But I, in my honest opinion, I think that we'll see a recovery if there ever is a, a crash. That's not financial advice. But um, so 
I, I'm not worried about that short-term, that short-term bear market. You know, obviously that's not ideal. You never want to see your portfolio go down. Um, but stocks don't always go up. It's hard to believe that in the last year and a half, but stocks don't always go up. Um, but when it comes to a bear market, my plan, my strategy does not change. Buy, hold, buy, hold, and you know, buy the dips. One thing you said there, Colin, it reminded me of, you know, I listened to some podcasts that are hosted by, I think the one guy's 36, the other guy might've just turned 40. So they've got about 10 years on me and 15 to 20 years on you, but they've been investing since the mid 2000s. And one thing they talk about is how the 2008 great financial crisis, it was the best buying opportunity of their investing lives. Or another way of putting it is the dollars that they invested then have grown more than any other dollars that they've invested in their career. It was a red day. It was a red year. There was, you know, blood on the streets, as it were, mm -hmm. in the stock market. But for them, it was an opportunity because they were young, because they stuck with their, in their case, probably like a dollar cost average index fund strategy. And now here we are 15 years later, and that money has 4 x I believe, from, from yeah. then till now. Now, for other people, 2008 was terrible. You know, there, there's a famous uh, 60 Minutes uh, clip that I still will watch from time to time where they talk about, you know, people's 401ks, their retirements cut in half in a year. And it was cut in half if they sold at the bottom. Mm -hmm. If those people decided not to sell out of their 401ks and simply held until, I want to say like 2010 or 2011, that they would have gotten a full recovery. They would have gotten all that quote unquote lost money back. Because it wasn't a real loss. It was just a loss on screen. It was a loss on paper. It wasn't a material loss. So, I mean, that's another thing that I, th I think you would agree with me, Colin, is that, well, I think you already did. You said that you would buy more. You wouldn't sell anything in, in a bear market because you have that long time horizon ahead of you. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, if you've been investing, a lot, a lot of people that, and I'll go on Instagram live and when I chat, I'll ask how long people have been investing and I'll get a, you know, some, a lot, quite a bit of people saying that they've been investing um, for less than a year. So really since, which is good to hear, right. They, but, but all they really know is basically the recovery from 2020 crash. Mm -hmm. And so when they see their portfolio in red one day, they get all nervous. And so I always teach, you know, we have to zoom out. We have to not allow day to day, month to month fluctuations or downturns in the market even year to year, you know, eventually there will be a time, you know, more than likely if you look at history, history of the stock market. Um, but we can't allow that to, you know, knock us off our course, knock us off our strategy. And, you know, 2020 was, was a min minuscule 2008, you know, the recovery only took like five or six months to hit pre 2020 crash numbers. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you brought up a good point, you know, that, that is the best time if you are holding in it for the long term, that is the best time to buy. Historically speaking, you know, it's 2008, 2000, 2020, 1986, 1987. Um, and if you want to go back to 19, you know, 29, the Great Depression, those were the best times to buy. Those, like you said, that's going to be the best time to see the returns on your money because not many times you're going to see a 30% drop and then a, you know, 50% recovery, 60% recovery on the, on the, on the rebound. And so, yeah. You look, you look at those stories. And to me as a young investor, when I see that, I don't see it as fear. I don't see it as I'm scared. I see it as an opportunity. Right. Now, this is a, a, a popular, um, I don't want to say argument or, or disagreement, but just there's a debate. This is a popular debate in the, in the money financial community. Do you 
suggest that people hold on to some cash on the sidelines and wait for the market to drop before dumping that money in? Or do you suggest that people should set a regular schedule of investing and, and not really worry about whether the market's up and down and simply just stay on that strict cadence of investing? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I keep a little bit of cash, um, but very, very small amounts. And that's more of just to see the opportunity. But the biggest thing that I can that I talk about is time in the market beats mm -hmm. timing the market, right? No one can time the market. And so keeping uh, quite a bit of cash or keeping cash on hand um, sounds great in theory to try to wait for that, that downturn, that, that time the market, you know, dips and pulls back. But my, my only argument to that is what if the market never does, you know, say like, say for example, today, you know, let's say the S and P is at 4,000. I know it's not, but let's just say it's at 4,000. What if this is the lowest it will ever be in the future and you have, you know, 20% of your portfolio in cash waiting for it to drop to 3,900, but it never does. And then tomorrow, you know, we're up at 4,100 and you never see 4,000 again. Well, you just missed out. And so, you know, if you want to keep cash on hand, one, two, three, five percent is fine, you know, if that's okay with you. But for me, I'm, you know, I have about probably two, three percent of my investments, what would be investments in cash. Um, but other than that, time in the market, you know, and, and buying consistently every single week. And when I do that, it will all average out, you know, dollar cost average. If there is a dip, then that's my opportunity. But I'm not sitting here waiting for a dip. I'm just sitting here putting my money in the market. And if there is a dip, which no one knows when it will be, if there will be, if there'll be a crash, if whatever will happen, no one knows what the future of the market looks like. Um, and so I'm not really worried about holding excess or a lot of cash on the side waiting for that because we just never know. And, you know, the best thing in my opinion is just get your money in the market and it will all work out, you know, when you dollar cost average. Yeah. I really like that answer. And it's probably because I agree with that answer. That's, that's <laughs> what I do in my own investing as well. And, uh, the data, the data backs up that decision. You know, one thing, one thing I did on the blog at the very, actually it was at the very beginning of COVID because people were talking about buying the dip and, and all that jazz. And uh, the math kind of bears out that if you hold cash on the sidelines over time, you might be right today, you might be right next week, but over time, if you make that your consistent strategy, the market is going to do exactly what you described, Colin, which is that you'll be sitting there at 4,000 today with this pile of cash in your hand, hoping the market goes down, but on average, the market goes up, mm -hmm. right? That's how the market got to where it is because on average in the past, it has gone up. And if the market is going up while you're holding cash, well, then your cash is losing opportunity value because it could have been there in the market. Yep. Yep. And I, and I think that that's a great, uh, you know, study. And I think that's a great um, proof that, Hey, you know, cash is great to have for the opportunity, but if you hold too much, if you hold a lot in cash, all you're doing is you're just missing out on opportunity rather than having that opportunity. So a little bit's okay, but you have too much, then like you said, you're missing out on opportunity, you're missing out on growth, um, trying to time the market, which might work out a couple of times, might work out 10 times. You might be lucky and it works out 30 times, but over the long term, you can't time the market. Right, right. Now, uh, legendary investor, father of Vanguard, father of index funds, John Bogle, Uncle John Bogle. He once said, uh, he says, if you wanna take 5% of your money and call it play money, that's fine. Make that your little pot of play money. You can invest in individual stocks. You can hold it in cash. 
you know, what do I, I've got 2% of my portfolio in Bitcoin. That's my play money. The other 98% is in my lazy portfolio. And Colin, you know, you just said you got a few percent in cash waiting for the dip. That's your play money. That's good. But that dollar cost average or just time in the market index funds for the majority of your money, that's the smart decision, at least according to, to John Bogle. And I like his advice, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, that's how, you know, I base my strategy for investing too, is, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading things about him. I'm reading things about Warren Buffett and all mm -hmm. these other investors and finding, you know, using all their information to make up my own strategy and then sticking with that strategy. Right. And, and seeing what's, what's worked for them. How can I make that work for me? And, you know, that's what they talk about. So I'm going to do what I've seen work and you know, that that's, that's how I formed my strategy. Nice. Nice. That makes sense. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit here, Colin. This is a, a interesting question, a pretty unique question to you, because I think more than any other guest I've had here on the Best Interest Podcast, you once had this experience in, in public on Twitter where this, this perfectly innocent statement that you made kind of backfired against you and it ended up showing what I think is truly the you know ugly, hideous side of the internet. So if you don't mind, no pressure, do you mind taking us through what happened there and, and maybe what valuable lessons, if any, you picked up from what is otherwise a pretty unfortunate experience? Yeah. So I put out a tweet in January and um, like you said, no ill intention on the way that it was worded. So, so the tweet, all it said was at 22, most of my peers are financing new cars, traveling every week, and getting drunk every week while I while I am finding ways to increase my income, connecting with people everywhere and making smart financial decisions while still enjoying the present. And then I said, life is about choices. Mm -hmm. And the intention of that tweet was to say, hey, you know, because how most people live their 20s gets overcrowded or overshadowed by other people focusing on, you know, investing or focusing on building up a business and just living a different way than what the norm is. And, um, it got on the wrong side of Twitter, got blown up. Um, at one point was trending in the UK, like the tweet, it, it was really an, an incredible, um, feat of social media. And I was, you know, on the wrong side of it, but, but the, the lesson that I learned is, is, you know, number one is social media is a great place, but it's also a very, very bad place. And what I mean by that is it's, you know, a great place in the sense of you own your feed, you own who, who you follow. And so um, you have the option to basically curate your feed how you want it to be. So if you want to follow people that post about investing or personal finance or building a business, you have the right to follow them. You also have the right to unfollow them. And the same goes with, you know, Instagram models or, or people that are, are fake on, you know, in, in today's age on Instagram, you have the right to follow them. You have the right to unfollow them. It's your page. You have the right to follow. Um, but, but I learned that, you know, social media is one of those places where people it's given us an opportunity to reach people across the world. Just like, just like you said, with your blog, with your podcast, your, you know, your social media stuff, we're, we're getting messages from people all over the world. That is awesome. But, be, but with that, that comes the idea of the disconnect between human, right? So mm -hmm. if I go under someone's post and I say something bad about them, yeah, like they, I don't really feel bad because I'm not there saying it to them in person. I'm behind a screen. I might behind, be behind an anonymous account. So it's not in any way connected to me or whoever the poster is. And so there's, there's a, the, the bad thing about social media is just that 
there's no human to human contact. There's no emotion. And so um, it really showed me the dark side of how nasty people can be and how words on, on a screen or on paper don't really have context. There's no way to read it. So how you read my tweet is different than how maybe I tried to tweet it or try to write it. And so um, it just got into the wrong hands, got into, you know, one account reposted it and it blew up and, and, and it got up to, you know, whatever it got up to. Um, and, and, you know, I really took the time to just focus in on that because it happened on a Friday. So I took Saturday and Sunday off Twitter, off social media, and I just kind of muted my, you know, notifications, didn't get anything. And just kind of like took a deep dive into myself and just see not, you know, I'm not saying I was right by what I said or wrong. I, I just wanted to evaluate. I stepped back from basically the decade investor was me calling and reevaluated how I wanted to be portrayed on social media. Um, Cause I never created it trying to be someone to, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, piss people off. Basically mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to. Um, and so somehow that tweet was read that way. So how could I go back and, and figure it out um, to not make that, uh, you know, the case in the future. And so it was a great learning experience. It happened to me when I was 22. So, you know, I was young, but it, it was a really good experience to have that at 22 to see both the beautiful thing about social media but also the bad thing about social media. And it's really allowed me to see and, and learn how to kind of navigate this whole social media type um, aspect of how, my, you know, as my pages grow, there's always hate. I'm always getting hate, but it's really taught me to just not really care what people think on social media because I'll never see them again. Now that doesn't mean I don't, you know, I'm not trying to make them mad, but you know, the way that they, I know what I'm trying to do with my page. I know my intention. Um, and, you know, if, if I can sleep well at night, knowing that I'm not trying to purposefully make people mad, then, um, you know, I can sleep well at night. So, so Colin, right, that tweet was simply saying to people that you have an option. You have an option to break away from the crowd. You have an option to do your own thing that you can, you can choose to have fun in your 20s. You can choose to party. And you even said in that tweet that you're still choosing to have fun but you're also choosing to make these smart financial choices. However, there was the, the disconnect, that human to human disconnect that you brought up that people just didn't interpret it that way. On their side of the screen, it brings me back, Colin, to one of the biggest lessons that I took away from my first employer. When I was your age, this was back in 2012, 2013. This was a software company. They hired hundreds, if not thousands of new college grads every year. And they had to train all these 22, 23-year-olds how to be a professional employee. And they said that one of the biggest things that people don't realize is that you cannot hear someone's tone of voice over an email. Mm -hmm. And it applies to Twitter exactly the same, if not worse, that I could send an email to you and say, Colin, please send me the report. Thanks, Jesse. And Colin could hear that, see that email and go, oh, that's a bit rude. That was a bit short maybe a bit sarcastic, but really I'm just sitting here going like, no, Colin, just, just send me the report. Thanks. You, you mm -hmm. can't get that tone over an email. And similarly, you can't get that tone over Twitter. So people, it's just such a unfortunate, unfortunate thing. And then just the reaction from that is, is potentially worse to react to that tweet in the way that some people did and basically just write you off or say, you know, look at this kid bragging. It was a, uh, a pretty, pretty unfortunate circumstance. Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of good that came from it in the terms mm -hmm. of, you know, people that 
or on my side of Twitter um, in the, you know, the money Twitter area and people not even on there that I've never even seen before um, reaching out and, and letting me know that, you know, they knew the intent. There was, you know, no ill intention. Um, but there's also that negative side of, of, of people that were, and I'm talking about people that have a million followers plus were, were po- posting about it. And, and, and the thing that got me the most and the, the lesson I learned too, on another lesson, just thinking about it is, you know, because there's no disconnect or because there is that disconnect, the, the attack essentially came less about the tweet and more about me, like my profile picture, you know, and they're like, mm. they're attacking me as a person. And that's where I really learned to just, you know, not really have to listen. You can't listen to what other people are saying about you. Cause you know, I mean, it, it was, it was a, it was a horrible experience. It wasn't, you know, I wish it upon no one. Um, and I can see how social media, that whole bullying stuff is really bad. Um, you know, luckily I'm a strong person and yeah, it sucked. It hurt, but, um, I'm strong enough to, you know, wasn't, it didn't affect me. Um, but, but yeah, it, it was definitely a learning lesson and I learned a lot about social media and I'm glad it happened. Um, because now I can use this as a lesson to teach other people. And, and, um, like for example, I had a high school teammate or I had a high school buddy that, um, he plays professional baseball, got his first opportunity to pitch in the, in the major leagues did really, really poorly, um, you know, for a lot of reasons, the nerves or whatever the mm-hmm. case is. Um, and his social media was blowing up with people, you know, how sports are, if you, if you miss the goal or if you, you miss the game winning shot or you're, you know, you're a starting pitcher and you do bad social media is a bad, bad place mm-hmm. um, for that. If that's the situation. And so I, you know, I was able to reach out to him and say, Hey, I went through something very similar. Here's how to like get away from it for the time being. Here's how to get off of that. And so um you know, it was a learning lesson. It was, it was, it sucks that it happened, but I'm grateful that it did because now, you know, now I know if I'm ever in that situation or anyone I know is in that situation that I know how to handle it. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, remember that person on the other side of the screen or remember the person on the other side of the microphone. Come on guys. I'm out here. I'm out here doing my best. Colin's pouring his heart out for you. Remember (laughs) us guys. No, I shouldn't make light of it. I shouldn't make light of it though, because it is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it is a serious issue and, and we're seeing, you know, especially in the last few years, not to get too far off of the money topic, but we are seeing more and more news about some of the damage that social media can do, whether it's to, uh, you know, especially to young people, to their mental health. There was a very well done documentary on Netflix last year called The Social Dilemma mm-hmm. that talks about some of the downsides of social media. And it comes from stuff like this, Colin. So Sorry it happened to you, but I'm very glad that you came out the other side stronger for it, that you, you got through it with your head held high and uh, moving on to bigger and better things, you know? That's the plan. That is the plan. Cool, man. Well, speaking of Twitter, let's go back to the good side of Twitter, <laughs> and that is our little corner that we call Money Twitter, because we had a bunch of mutual friends reach out with some questions that they wanted to bounce off you here on the Best Interest Podcast. So maybe we'll blaze through these quick. We'll get to the standard rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap this thing up. Sounds good. All right. So the first one comes from Shadow Rents, who asked, Colin, would you rather fight 10 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? Uh <laughs> <laughs> definitely the the um 10 horse-sized wait well 10 duck-sized horses is that what yes. it is yeah 10 10 small horses or one big duck okay yeah <laughs> definitely the 10 small horses um i i 
if if I don't know much about ducks, but if they're anything like geese, they can be pretty feisty. And so one big, you know, duck, I don't know if I'd want to have to go um, take that. So I, I'm going to go with the 10, 10 little horses um, and, and see if I can make it out on the other other side alive. But uh, I'm going to have to go with the 10, 10 uh, small little horses. Well, friend of the pod, Trey, who I, I doubt you know, Trey is going to love that answer because he too hates geese. And a uh, <laughs> little anecdote, I once punched a goose that was coming after me. See, they're feisty. You, they're, you know, you know, they're animals. <laughs> Canada geese are not pleasant animals, guys. <laughs> let me tell you. Um, this next one comes from the FI couple who they asked a, a riff on Shadow's question, but much more on theme. They said, would you rather own a real estate investment trust, a REIT, or physical rental properties? I think in, in, in my current situation, you know, where I stand financially, my age, it's easier for me to do a REIT right now, a real estate investment trust, hands off. Yeah, you know, your, your return isn't going to be as great um, as physical real estate or, or could not be as great. Um, but just the hands-off idea the the, you aren't really, I mean, you aren't owning that physical real estate. So you don't have to, if there's issues, if you own a REIT, you're not dealing with that. There's, they own it, that, that trust, that company owns it and they deal with it. And so right now, definitely a REIT. Um, but in the, in the near future, I do plan to get into some physical real estate. Um, but, but for the time being, a REIT is, is going to be my, um, my avenue in terms of, you know, real estate itself. Nice. So I like that answer. I'm, I'm probably in the same boat, but the allure of physical real estate, it's, it's, tempting. it's tempting. It is very tempting. Um, <laughs> Matt Rumancic, he asked, do you dip your pizza in ranch? I assume this is a serious question and not an inside joke, but what do you, what do you do with your pizza, Colin? Well, I saw him post something uh, earlier today on it, so he must be on the uh, pizza okay. kick. Okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I do. I do dip it in ranch. Um, I think that, that it adds, well, it depends on the pizza. Um, you know, if I'm going to go like a New York style, then no, you know, I don't want to make anyone from, from, you know, you from, from up there (laughs) upset. Um, but if, if, you know, I can't go wrong with a little bit of ranch on there, I do love honey on pizza. I don't know if you've ever had that before, but honey on pizza is definitely a, a game changer as well. So I'm just a big sauce guy. I like sauce. So ranch, honey on pizza, I, in my opinion, you can't go wrong with that. Shout out to the Swan Dive here in Rochester. They do have honey on their pizza and it Mm. is delicious. So good. So good. Uh, Stephen Wealthy had a great question that I think we already covered, so we don't have to cover it again, but I want to shout out Stephen anyway, because he asked, uh, how do you do it? You're so young. You know, how did you get started with such a strong conviction for investing at a young age? And I think, you know, it's a great question um, that that we, you know, Stephen, we're going to give you credit for getting that one earlier in the episode. Um, (laughs) Moses, who I actually don't know Moses, but he asked, uh, what was your recent day job before you decided to go full-time working for yourself? Are you, are you working full-time for yourself, Colin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So wow. two, a little over two weeks ago, um, I left my nine to five to do this stuff all full-time. Um, and that was, so I, when I graduated college, I worked in alcohol sales. So I worked in wine sales more mm-hmm. specifically. Um, and then more recently I worked in um, healthcare consulting and then, like I said, about two, a little over two weeks ago um, was my last day at my nine to five and I'm doing this all full time. So um, it, it's, it's been a, it's been a, a really awesome opportunity. Thought a lot, thought a lot about it, you know, t- 
talked to a lot of people um, and felt like if there's any time to do it, now is the time. And so um, taking the opportunity I'm given, the, the things I've been doing on, you know, working on for the last year to just see what I can, what can come from it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you might like this advice. Maybe someone's already told it to you, Colin, but a friend of mine, David Nero, shout out if you're listening, David, he started his own company essentially right out of undergrad. Really, I guess you could say he started it in grad school, but he was around your age, 23, 24. He started his own company. And I asked him once like, man, how did you deal with the risk? How did you take that leap? And he said, it's simple game theory. He convinced himself that the math made sense where he said, what's the upside if this works? Well, the upside is huge. I'm I'm working for myself. I'm working on my dream. It's exactly what I want to do. What's the downside if it doesn't work? Well, in his case, the downside was he lost, he would lose say two to three years of professional growth. He would maybe get half salary for two or three years and lose some of that potential income. But when he weighed the two sides of those scales, he said, yeah, going for it makes a lot of sense. The upside is huge. And I assume you you probably find yourself in a, a similar position. Yeah. So, you know, my thought was I'm 23. I've basically worked for a year and a half in the professional setting um, in two jobs at, at already. So I have that. And, and similar thing, you know, my 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 thought was if, if it works out then that's the best thing that could happen, you know, and, and things go amazing. And I work for myself for, forever, forever, you know, whatever the, however long this goes, if it doesn't work out, I'll just go get another job. Yeah. I miss out on, you know, maybe a year, two, three, four years of growth, but the experience that I'm getting from this is going to be something I would never have gotten if I would have just stayed at my, you know, my, my nine to five. Um, but with that being said, and, and, and I made a video on this to explain it is, it wasn't something I just did. Maybe your friend did. Um, but, but for me, it was something that it's been six months of my side income being greater than my nine to five. So it wasn't like, it was just like, I created my Twitter account. I created my social media stuff. And then the next month I jumped off and went, you know, full blown on it. It's been something going on for, you know, half a year. And so it, it was more of just that whole thought of, do I, do I take the risk of it working out really well or the worst thing comes the case is I just get another job. So, so speaking of side income, Colin, I'm just curious, you know, where, where's this side income coming from or now it's your main income. Where, where's that coming from? Yeah. So it comes from a few different areas. Um, the biggest is either on, I have a YouTube channel that, um, you know, I make, I have a part, I'm a partner with YouTube. So I make money via ads. Um, affiliate marketing is another one as well as I help teach and, and um, be a provider in a Discord chat. So I get paid to spend every day and teach lessons in there, um, as well as, you know, I have a course and a book that I don't really push because, you know, I love giving stuff for free. Um, I, it's hard for me to make people pay for my, my stuff, but um, I do have it out there um, that people can buy. And, and, and really those four or five things allow me to, to do this full time. Um, and and, you know, I don't really talk about the numbers because, you know, I don't want to get too transparent, but the transparency Mm -hmm. I do is say it was more than what I was making in my nine to five. And that is what allowed me to, to give confidence in myself to say, Hey, just do it. If it doesn't work out, I can always go back to a nine to five. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Excited to see where you're growing from here. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been a ride. It's been a really, really, uh, crazy year. Uh, and, and, you know, Every day is a, is a blessing. Every day is, is I'm grateful that, um, you know, because 
without the community that I've built, I would never be here. So everyone that's hit follow right. everyone, same thing with, you know, your blog and your podcast, everyone that's hit follow or subscribe or, you know, sign up for your newsletter or whatever the case is, they make you who you are as a, as a content creator. So, um, you know, I'm sure you feel the same is you're just, it's, you're just grateful and blessed to be able to, to do and teach what you love. Definitely. Absolutely agree. A hundred percent. Dante Weigel. He asked, uh, Colin, I'd love to hear your take on Jesse's dividend thread. So, A, I'm not sure if you are familiar with the dividend thread, Colin. Uh, and I know the listeners probably aren't. So real quick, the dividend thread was me on Twitter simply explaining that the way many people on Twitter talk about dividend stocks, they are overhyping the stocks. They treat dividend stocks like it's some magical potion that not only goes up over time, but also pays you this very reliable income source. Now, both of those things are true. Dividend stocks do go up over time and they do pay you income in the form of dividends. But if you add up those two sources of increasing value, it's essentially equivalent to if that company was simply a growth stock that is increasing over time. So my thread was dividend stocks, they're not bad, they just aren't the magic potion that many people make them out to be. So what's yeah. your take on that? So, so for me, I have 80% of my money in index funds and ETFs. Now, obviously mm-hmm. those, those pay distributions, those pay dividends, yep. um, but yep. you're, not, you're not going into them for that. Um, and I do have about 20%, it's maybe a little less now, but 20% of my, port- my investments are in individual stocks. Mm-hmm. And I would say 20 seven of those, I have 30 individual stocks. So 27, 26 of those pay a dividend. Now, with that being said, majority of those that pay a dividend are not your traditional dividend stocks. And what I mean by that is it's more growth. So it's like your Apples, your Microsofts, you know, your MasterCard, your Visas really not. Yeah, they pay a dividend, but it's not, I'm not retiring early off of these dividends, you know, you have to have so much in there to, to, um, you know, the growth is insane. And so, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, don't do never invest in a company to just get the dividend, because if you're investing just for the dividend, if you're chasing the high yield, then it might work out for a month. It might work out for a quarter. It might work out for a year. It might work out for five years, but it's not sustainable. Um, usually for high yield companies, um, obviously there's more metrics that go into it, but, Never invest in a company just for a dividend, um, always, especially if you're younger. Now, if you're needing income, that's different. I'm talking about younger investors. If, you're ch- if you want to get stocks that pay you a dividend, then for me, I'm growth. I'm growth, like I said, Apple, Microsoft, te- uh, uh, not Tesla. <laughs> I, got it. I was talking about that earlier today. They do not pay a dividend. Um, mm-hmm. MasterCard, Visa, stuff like that where, yeah, they pay a dividend, but again, you're, the, the growth is not coming from that dividend or that reinvested dividend, really. It's coming from the actual share price appreciation itself. I agree with everything you just said. There's nothing wrong with dividends. That's the reason why we buy stocks is because eventually we expect these companies to pay us dividends mm-hmm. and pay us back for our investment. But seeking them out specifically to chase that yield, in your words, that's the part where I was saying it's not good. And anyway, right. it caused it caused a little bit of a stir up, a minor stir up. It wasn't a it wasn't a Colin level people <laughs> in the UK hating me stir up. It was more of like people within our community kind of saying like, Jesse, you, you don't really know what you're talking about. And yeah. I, I beg to differ. 
it's okay. I mean, though. we're learning. I think we're learning. We're learning. I think some, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it goes with anything in life. You're going to have people have differing opinions. Yeah. And, yep. and the beautiful, the beautiful thing is that we have to have the, we have to have the ability to, whether I agree with you or not, let's say I don't, I have to have the ability to just say, okay, I don't agree with you, but I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to try to like hear your side and maybe we might not find common ground at all, but at least I'm going to give you the respect to, to listen to your opinion. And then we can have a conversation, very nice conversation after say, well, you know, I don't agree with you on this, this, and this, but I maybe agree with you on this. And you know what, we're going to agree to disagree, but I'm going to at least, you know, give you the respect to, to hear your opinion or, or read your thread. Props to that, Colin. I like it. Uh, next one from, from Adam Schaup, who was a recent guest here on the podcast. Adam asked, Colin, do you think that paying cash for a car is dumb? That's a good question. And I think that it boils down to a few things. Um, I think it boils down to the price of the car. Now, you know, if you're paying cash for a $50,000 car, um, you know, why, <laughs> why, you know, mm-hmm. why do you have $50,000 in cash? You, you know, but, um, if it comes down to, I guess the, the, I think what he's trying to get at is what is the opportunity cost of investing that money and taking and financing the car at a, at a, you know, an interest rate of whatever it may be. And so my answer to that is what is the interest rate going to be? Because when I, so when I bought my um, car, I have now, I didn't have the cash exactly um, to pay for it. I paid it off in three months because I was getting jobs, getting, you know, some money coming in. Um, and so I had to finance it for three months and it was an 8% interest rate. And at the time, uh, looking back, I should have invested it because this was right at the beginning of 2020. So like investing that would have way beaten an 8% return, you know, or 8%, you know, paying off that guaranteed rate of return. Mm -hmm. Um, but in a normal market, you know, is, do you believe 8% you're going to get better in the market or are you going to get, um, you know, worse in the market and you're essentially losing money if you would have just paid it off. And the second thing really too, so interest rates, the first one, but the second thing too, is do you like having debt? And I think that's a behavior thing. Right. And so, right. You know, I saw he, he tagged uncommon yield and um, you know, he, I love his stuff. He, he brings that, you know, different mindset. Um, but I think for some people, when it comes down to a liability being a car um, it's not an asset um, it's a depreciating asset if you want to even call call it an asset. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you like having debt? Do you do you like you know every month three hundred dollars going out of your paycheck to go pay for your car, even though the interest rate is four percent and you think you could beat that in the market? Are you okay with having debt you know over your head? And that's a behavior thing. And so the numbers may say one thing, and I know him and Brennan, they they or Budget Dog, they talk about it with that the housing paying off that. It just boils down to behavior, and some people just don't want the debt. And so you know, depending on the price, depending on the interest rate, and depending on the person paying cash for a car, for that person and their behavior and their psychological mindset might be right. But the true answer is it depends. You know, that, that's how it really boils down to in finances. The true answer for everything is it just depends from person to person. And so um, it, it's hard to say, you know, is that a good idea or not? Because it might be for you, but it might not be for me or vice versa, or, or the person listening, it might be good for you, but the next person that listens, it might not be. So there, there's a lot of different factors that come into play to be able to say yes or no. And it boils down to person to person. Right. Trying lots of stuff. Some of it works, some of it fails, learn along the way and just keep that snowball growing. I, I hear you, mm-hmm. man. You're doing great. 
Uh, thanks for that question, Brennan. <laughs> and uh, and last one from from Business of Wealth. He asked, I think this is a question. There's no question mark, but he just wrote in non-financial career ambitions, which I could take one of two ways. Is it your non-career ambitions, like just stuff you want to do in your personal life, or is it career ambitions that don't have to do with finance? So you could take that either way you want, Colin. Um, I, I can answer both, I guess. Yeah, the, yeah. the first one would be the just non-career, so like personal um, aspirations. I, I'm, a, I'm a big runner. Um, I've really fallen in love with running in the last year and a half, two years almost. And so I've completed a few halves. I've completed one full marathon. And so my aspiration or, or my dream is to run either an ultra marathon or to do an Ironman. Um, one of those two things would be would be super um, awesome to complete. Not easy, but would be really um, you know a great feeling to be done with it. And then in terms of a non-financial um, career aspiration, if you know a job that's not financial related, mm -hmm. I would love to do something in sports. Um, like I, like we were talking about before the podcast, I, I played college football, so I've grown up in sports my entire life. I don't know what it would be. I think I would really thrive in a, some sort of like a broadcasting or a, um, you know, behind in front of the camera, you know, talking about maybe reporting or something, something like that. But, but I haven't really thought too much about it. Um, but I think something along, along the lines of sports related would be a, a career that I would love to go into. How about like, you know, make a lot of money off YouTube and then buy the Kansas city chiefs. Is that, <laughs> is that a potential path? If that is in my, if that is in my plan, then I'm not going to complain about it one bit. <laughs> cool, man. Well, let's get into the standard best interest podcast rapid fire questions. And the first one is always, what was the last material object or personal luxury that you spent a hundred dollars or more on? I was, so when you sent me the questions, I was trying to think about it because I'm a, I'm a simple guy. You know, I don't really have a lot of things that I feel the need to buy um, materialistically wise, uh, but personal luxury, I'd really love quality time with my friends or my family. So it would have to be, you know, probably something of going out to dinner or, you know, going to a nice restaurant um, or spending, you know, a week weekend with a friend or something um, or friends going out to probably going out to eat or something like that. I, I just really value um, time. You know, I, I think that's material or materialistic things are cool you know, I have things that I love, but when it comes to quality time with my friends and my family, um, it's something that, you know, really money, you can't put money, a price tag on that. Um, so spending time with them and if it costs me a hundred dollars or more to go out to dinner with them or, you know, do something with them, then I'm not going to, you know, bat an eye or be upset about it because, you know, quality time to me is super, super important. So it would have to be something along the lines of, quality time going out to dinner or an experience with that family member or friend um, that, that again, hundred dollars is, you know, to some people, a lot of money. Um, but in the grand scheme of quality time spending with that person, it's that hundred dollars is nothing um, with the time and, the, and the, the experience that you get to spend with them. You know, we talked about some psychological studies before and buying experiences, buying time with other people is one of those things that has been shown to be, a, a spending choice that brings you happiness. So I think that's an awesome answer. Yeah. And, and you know, like I said, the hundred dollars, it could be depending on the person, you know, the, the amount of money is not a big deal. And 
because the time is something that we can never get back. Money can't buy time. And so for me, spending that time with that loved one or that friend um, is, is second to none. So what's one good habit you're trying to form, Colin, or potentially a, a bad habit that you're trying to break? I think my biggest habit right now that I'm trying to break is the idea of, you know, I now that I'm working on this full time um, there, when you work by yourself, you don't have a boss telling you what to do. Right. And, and I love this. So what I'm doing so much and I'm so motivated every day, like, you know, I'm spending more time on doing this than I was at my nine to five in, in terms of hours per week. Um, but I think that I could be way better with my time management. Um, throughout the day, there'll be some times where, uh, you know, I'll work for a few hours and then take, I'll say, I'm gonna take an hour break to eat lunch or an hour break to just re relax. And that turns into like an hour 30 or two. And then, you know, I'm, I'm crunched on the rest of the day in terms of time. So my biggest habit I'm trying to form and break, I guess, both at the same time uh -huh. is just, uh, you know, building a better schedule, um, with, with my new schedule. And, and breaking the habit of, you know, taking that extra 30 minutes of to to watch a different YouTube video on finance or to scroll through Twitter to find some some ideas for content or something like that. Um, it, it's really just trying to form my new day to day. And it's going to take some time. Like I said, it's only been about two and a half weeks, but um, every day is, is, is an opportunity to get better, better in terms of that. Nice time management. A huge one. I like it, man. Mm -hmm. um, What's your favorite financial tool or app or service that you use and, and why do you like it? I think my favorite is personal uh, capital, which is for those that don't know, it's a way that you can link all your accounts and see your net worth. And I say that not because, you know, it's great to always look at your net worth every day and see it go up because some days will go down um, and you're in it for the long term. So day to day fluctuations don't matter. But what, the reason I like it is because it allows you to track what your net worth is. And what the common saying is, you know, what gets tracked gets improved. And so you see it every day or you see it every month going up that motivates you. It keeps you going, but also it gets improved. And so seeing it all in one picture, you know, cause I have accounts in a couple of different brokerages. So allowing it to go to one spot in one picture um, really gives me the opportunity to see in one stop shop, how to track, how to improve this, you know, this number. Um, and in turn, in turn, you know, allow me to, to go out there and, and teach more um, and, and find ways to help other people. And so I don't have to spend the time behind the computer looking at my broke, you know, at my different apps, finding what, you know, what this is or how to do this. It's all in one spot, it takes me less time, which means more time to be in front of the camera, more time to be in front of the phone, helping people um, really with their, with them. Cause at the end of the day, you know, I just love helping people. And the, the money and all that stuff is a byproduct. I'm not here for the money. I'm here to help. Um, and so the more I can do that, the more happy I am. Ditto, man. I love it. And, and listeners, by the way, uh, Personal Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. So if you want to start your Personal Capital account, we've got a link in the show notes. You can go check that out. And uh, so, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Colin. Free advertising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Appreciate it, man. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> unplanned. Unplanned. Um, and then the last one, Colin. If I gave you a billboard and you could put anything on it to share with the world, what would you say? Yeah, so I was I actually wrote it down right here on my notes because I didn't want to forget it because I thought of it and I said, this is what I want to say. So my thing is simple, it's short, it's sweet, but it's super powerful. Stop caring what other people think. And, and the reason I say that is 
you know, from my experience on social media really helped me form this. Um, but even day-to-day life, we can't allow people's mindsets or people's thoughts dictate our lives. And, and caveat, I'm not saying, you know, your mom, your dad, your brother, or sister, you just tell them to, you know, bye-bye. I'm not caring. <laughs> there's, there's that circle of people that you care about their opinions and, you know, you go to them for their opinions. But majority of people stop caring what they think, you know, because that in terms of finances leads us down a dark path of, hey, if I buy this car, this, you know, $15,000 used car versus this 30,000 brand, you know, $30,000 brand new car, well, then, you know, same Timmy next door isn't going to like me or isn't going to think I'm cool. He's going to think it's weird. And that's going to create bad financial decisions if we care what other people think. And so my message on the billboard is just to stop caring what other people think. And that's really how you excel and how you find success in your life, because, you know, you're going to walk and talk and do the things that you love. And it doesn't matter what anonymous one, two, three, four on Twitter replies to you, um, because, you know, they're not, you're not going to allow that to dictate your life. So that, that's my message. Just stop caring what other people think, focus on doing you. Um, and that's how you find success in your finances and really in life. Um, it is just when you stop caring what other people think caveat minus your, minus your circle of people on, you know, we can't forget about them, but, but yeah, stop caring what other people think. And that's how we can find success in our life. Timmy next door. He kind of sucks, but <laughs> Colin, the decade investor is pretty awesome. Colin, I can't thank you enough for coming onto the best interest podcast. How, how can people reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you? Yeah, it's all social media. So at Decade Investor on Twitter and on Instagram. And then I have a YouTube channel I'm, I'm working on growing. That's also Decade Investor and then DecadeInvestor.com. So basically, if you just type in Decade Investor on Google, you probably will find one of my various ways to find me. Um, and, and same with Jesse, probably always feel free to reach out with questions in the DMs. You know, I, I scroll through them before I go to bed when I wake up to see how I can answer and how I can help. So that's how you find me is just anything decade investor should link you to me. There are some scam accounts on Instagram. So watch out for those decade investor. It's only spelled one way, but, um, but yes, that that's how you can find me is, is decade investor on any platform out there. Excellent. I will throw all of those links into the show notes, Colin. And thank you again for coming on the best interest podcast. This is an awesome conversation. Yeah. Thanks again, Jesse. And um, hope that, you know, the listeners find some value out of this and you know they can they can go and, and start making those financial decisions and hopefully change their mindset maybe on some on some uh, investing and in, in money talk but really really good conversation i thought as well and i'm excited to see um the lives change through this podcast excellent same here same here have a good night man i'll talk to you soon you too thank you colin thank you for coming on to the best interest podcast today Listeners, you can find Colin's links to the show notes. That's to his Twitter account, his Instagram, his YouTube channel, and to his website. If you want to reach out to me, my email is jesse at bestinterest.blog. You can follow me on Twitter, where my username is bestinterest underscore jc, or on Instagram, where my username is the underscore best underscore interest. Thank you guys for subscribing, and we have a five-star review. Curtis wrote in and said, I enjoy hearing the interviews and different perspectives. Definitely should give it a listen. Thank you, Curtis. 
we are going to continue bringing you interviews and different perspectives so that you have something awesome to listen to. We can continue to invest in one another because, as Ben Franklin said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Sharing with others is investing in their knowledge. So thank you all for listening to episode 31 of the Best Interest Podcast. Thank you.